Good morning. Great to gather here and worship the Lord together, isn't it? Even though it's cold, glad the streets weren't bad. Let's go ahead and pray before we look into the word. Father, we thank you for our time here together. We thank you for the bond of fellowship that we have in Christ. We thank you for all that you've given us in our spiritual lives, knowing Christ. Pray that you would open our eyes to the scriptures now and that we could become better people, more knowledgeable of you, draw closer to you through this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for anyone who's been here for a while, you know you've heard me refer a number of times to well-known Christian leaders who have decided that the Christian faith is no longer for them. Now, you know, on this point, we could discuss or even argue over whether the person was actually truly born again or, or whether they were not truly born again, but that's not really where I want to go with this this morning. <clears throat> I've mentioned reasons before that I've read or heard people being interviewed talk about why they left their Christian beliefs or, you know, however you want to put it. And for some, it's because they've seen evil go unpunished. And they think, well, and they're even doubting the existence of God in that case. For others, it may be seeing innocent people suffer unjustly. How could a good God allow that to happen? That these innocent people suffer at the hands of evil people. Uh, some people feel like they themselves have been cheated by God. And so they just don't want to have anything to do with him. They feel disappointed in that he didn't help them through some experience or that somebody took advantage of them and God didn't save them from that. And then some just say they can't believe in the miracles of the Bible. After they've grown up, you know, listening to them, believing them as a child, they no longer believe them as an adult. Now, <clears throat> probably everyone here knows about Billy Graham, has heard of Billy Graham, the most famous evangelist, you know, since the 1940s almost. Um, he, he's been like a chaplain to several United States presidents. Many of you know that he died recently, just months before his 100th birthday. <clears throat> now, Billy Graham had a close friend, ministry partner, very early in his evangelistic you know, ministry, that many people thought that this partner would become the most famous or the, the most uh, well-known evangelist of the two. His name was Joe Templeton. And somewhere along the way, Joe Templeton said he could not promote the gospel message anymore. And I have a quote from him. <clears throat> excuse me. And it's taken from a correspondence that he had with Billy Graham, you know, a long time ago. And so he said, as he was writing to Billy Graham, but Billy, it's simply not possible to believe, for instance, 
the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. And that's not a matter of, matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. And I'm thinking, this guy walked away from the faith, you know, at least partially because a demonstrable fact of evolution. And my response is, okay, Joe Templeton, go ahead and demonstrate this demonstrable fact of evolution. No one's ever been able to do it. Well, Joe Templeton died in 2001 at the age of 86 after writing a book that he titled Farewell to God. That's a sad, sad story. And as I consider this matter of turning away from the faith, the Christian faith, I'm coming to the opinion that this may be mostly a problem of not really understanding who God is. Not really under, having a good picture of who God really is. It may be that many are not getting the full picture of God that the Bible gives us. Now, not that we can know everything about God. He's infinite. But are we coming up short on who God is because of a lack of Bible knowledge? Are we into the scriptures enough in order to have a complete enough picture of who God really is? And if we're not, that's really on us, isn't it? And I bring that up this morning because I believe this morning's passage is just such a passage that can increase or broaden our knowledge of God and His ways. If we put God in too small of a box, in the box that we ourselves had made for Him, if we decide God does this and does this and can't do this, if we put God in too small of a box that we've made for Him, smaller than that what the Scriptures tell us about Him, then we may be setting ourselves up to be disappointed or fooled by having too small of a picture of God. And I think may, that may be a large part of the problem of people turning away from God in these days. We've been working our way through the birth of Christ. We've seen how God has orchestrated all the events like we could never have dreamed that they would have happened. You know, we're talking about the Messiah being born at some point. And then God brought him here in ways that we could have never dreamed of. We've seen Old Testament prophecies, hundreds of years old, fulfilled in ways that no one could have predicted. You know, they have the prophecies, but no one even came close to predicting how they would happen the way that God chose to do them. But God brought them along. He brought them to pass in his own timing and in his own chosen way. That really proves that he had to do it. You know, John the Baptist was born to a very old couple who was never able to have children. Jesus was born to a virgin 
in the very town, the small town that the prophet Micah had prophesied 700 years earlier. Angels announcing the birth of the Messiah to some shepherds watching their flocks at night. And then they went into town and spread the news about the birth of the Messiah and everyone got excited about it. Who would have planned it that way? Who would have planned it that angels would come and give the birth announcement of the Messiah? Shepherds. And they go out and they spread the news and everyone gets excited about it. Now, in our passage this morning, we're 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And the law of Moses prescribes uh, what parents of newborns are to do following the birth of their children. And so <clears throat> we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 and start with verses 22 through 24. And this is 40 days after Jesus is born. It's not moving, Daniel. Thank you. I'll keep trying, though. <laughs> it says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, that's what, that, that refers to the woman having the child, the purification rites. Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And we've already had a couple of mentions of as it is in the law of the Lord. So we can see that Joseph and Mary are very uh, conscious of following the scriptures and they're very dedicated to following the scriptures but these purification rites are what the mother has to go through after she's had a child because anytime there's been any kind of a blood flow or you know it could, it could be having a child could be an injury could be you know uh, touching a dead body anytime there's been some uncleanness physically there has to be a period of time of waiting and then there has to be a sacrifice given to come before a holy God. And that's the whole point is we're coming before a holy God and we don't come before him, you know, with injuries and, and, and bleeding and that sort of thing. So Joseph and Mary are following the prescribed uh, cleansing rituals in order to come before God because they revere God, they revere his word, and they do things according to what, what pleases God. And in this case of bringing the baby Jesus, there was not only the purification rites, but there was also the presentation of a newborn, a newborn male. And then he was also the firstborn son. So there was like three things all going on at once as they came to the temple to present Jesus, consecrate him to God as a special uh, child of God. So after 40 days, they dedicate him to God as a firstborn son, and they bring a sacrifice which says, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And what that tells us is that Joseph and Mary were kind of of a lower class economically. 
not destitute, but somewhat lower class because they did not bring a lamb. Doves or pigeons were in place if they couldn't afford a lamb. So it tells us that Jesus was not this person born into um, you know, wealth or comfort or, or privilege. But he could relate to the common person, even those of lower classes. But the way Luke is describing this scene is how Joseph and Mary are very careful to observe and do things as the law has prescribed and that what honors God because they reverenced God very much. So now, really, when you think about this event, you know, where you bring Jesus to the temple in order to present him before God, to consecrate him as a firstborn son, as a special servant of God. And we know that this was God's very own son, which puts that up on a whole other level. As they bring Jesus to the temple to present him to God as a consecrated servant of his, we know that as the Son of God, he himself will one day be sacrificed as the perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of all mankind. So that's what's happening here. As Jesus is brought forward, you know, it looks like they're just bringing forward their, their baby. But this is the one who is going to be sacrificed at the altar in order to pay for the sins of the whole world. And his sacrifice will appease the wrath of God. God, by his nature, by his holiness, he has to be wrathful towards sin. And Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient for the wrath of God to be poured out upon his own son so that anyone in the world, all through history, whoever has turned to God in faith, and now that Christ has come, whoever has turned to God in faith and repentance of their sins and turned to Christ for forgiveness, Christ's death covers their sins. And so you have this event, this, this dedication of the Son of God who will take away the sins of the world or, or sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. You have that going on right here in this temple and no one knows about it. It's just Mary and Joseph bringing their baby to consecrate him to the Lord. And you know, humanity is often oblivious to the great, amazing works of God. Yet, in this story, we have two individuals that is going to change that a little bit because God has given them a special message here. So, in verses 25 through 32, watch what happens after Joseph and Mary come to the, to the temple court, to the courtyard. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that really means the coming of the Messiah. Consolation means the comfort, you know, to help somebody in trouble. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So he had that special promise from God. 
Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And he's talking about, now I can die with peace in my heart. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, the nations, and the glory of your people Israel. Did we see that one? Okay, we'll stop there. <clears throat> so, Luke is putting special emphasis here on Simeon's godly character. Because Simeon yearned for the coming of the Messiah. He yearned for the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Savior. And God was rewarding his faithfulness, his complete trust in him to provide what he'd promised. Simeon banked on that promise with all his energy and might and and all he could muster up inside of him, he truly understood who this baby Jesus was. You know, probably nobody else did, but Simeon understood, and the Holy Spirit helped him in that. And so Simeon tells God, Okay, Lord, I can die in peace now. I have seen the fulfillment of your promise. And I was trying to think, of, you know, Simeon's mindset, all his feelings and everything as he was going through this. This man who had such a strong uh, desire to see the Messiah. <clears throat> and, you know, the Messiah had been prophesied for hundreds of years, thousands of years and since. And now this one man who wanted it so badly, he'd been told that he is going to see the Messiah. And you just think of the feelings that came over him of relief and of joy and of thankfulness, overflowing gratitude that God had given him this special opportunity. I think his heart must have been ready to just burst in a good way. Praise to God pours out. I believe it shows how attuned he was to the promises of God how strongly he trusted in them and lived by them. He lived in light of the promises of God. And this energized him. He clung to them. And then I think, aren't we living under the promises of God in our day? Aren't we looking forward to his return? Don't we have some pretty spectacular promises that have been given to us for our future? I mean, we have the returning Christ promised to us coming in blinding glory. Remember Jesus on the mountaintop of transfiguration where it turned in, he turned in, he was transfigured into the figure he would be when he come back, when he came back <clears throat> and he glowed and he and it was the disciples ended up down on their faces. They couldn't even take the brightness. 
And when he comes back, he's going to have complete victory over the armies of the world. And those armies of the world are going to gather at Megiddo to try to stop him from coming back. That's how far humanity is, is going to go down the tubes. They're going to try to stop Jesus from coming back and building his kingdom. And he's going to just wipe them out. And he's promising to punish all evil, make all things right, and expunge all sin. And he's going to renew the heavens and the earth. And he's going to redeem our earthly bodies so that we can exist in the eternal kingdom. We can't go to the eternal kingdom like this. His glorious kingdom where he and God the Father will sit on thrones Ruling the world in complete righteousness. Everything will go as it's supposed to go. No more sin. No more jealousy. No more trying to outdo other people. We're just going to be so satisfied in the Lord. That's what we have to look forward to, isn't it? And we have the added advantage of knowing that he already came the first time. You know, to, to fulfill that promise. And now he's promised to return and finish the job. I think Simeon could be an inspiration for us. But you know, there's one more thing about Simeon's outlook and attitude that I believe is worth noting. It's something we've already read. But he said, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. When Simeon saw the baby, his heart was at peace. True peace. He didn't ask God to keep him around so he could see the child grow up and, you know, do some of his ministry or whatever. He said, I'm ready. I've seen it. I believe it. He was totally satisfied with just seeing the baby make it to earth, so to speak. So he said, now I can die in peace. And that peace is a vibrant trust in God's promises. So I think that's something else we can benefit from, from Simeon's testimony there. As we have not only seen the birth of the Savior, as we know it as history, we also know about his sacrifice on the cross for sins. We know about his resurrection. We know about his ascension into heaven to be with the Father and his promise to return. So I'm thinking we could have even greater peace than Simeon. I mean, we've seen so much more than Simeon has. And he could die in peace. So, do we have that kind of peace? Obviously, those who walk away from Christ, they don't have that kind of peace, do they? And this is why we need to stay in the scriptures, isn't it? We need to stay in the scriptures for assurance, for strengthening. You know, we're weak. Spiritually, we're weak. 
we need to be continue to strengthen ourselves. It's like, you know, food. We need to keep eating food to stay strong physically. We need to stay in the scriptures to stay strong or become strong spiritually, to be comforted and to have that strong sense of peace. That Christ, we know he's already fulfilled so much of the promises and we know he's going to fulfill the rest. So Simeon is a model believer and God gave him special privilege of seeing the Savior before he died. And he rejoiced and said, now you can dismiss me. But now he's going to prophesy about the child. And this prophecy he gives will give us some extremely important information about our faith and what we must fit into our faith. So verses 33 through 35. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him about the child. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, to Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, that kind of takes us in a different direction, doesn't it? Like, okay, this may not be a bed of roses all the way through. This child will be the cause of many to rise, but he'll also be the cause of many to fall. And he's talking about people in Israel. He's not talking about Israelites rising and the nations falling. Here he's talking about there will be people against him. You know, when you think of the Messiah coming, <clears throat> and all through Israelites, Israel's history, when they talked about the Messiah coming, it was just like, hey, this is going to be a warrior, and we're going to cheer him on, and we're going to watch him defeat all of our enemies. There wasn't really thoughts of, well, who's going to be for him, who's going to be against him? You just think of him winning battles for us. But Simeon says that this Deliverer, this rescuer, will be the cause of not only many to rise, but also the cause of many to fall. What does that mean? It sounds like there will be Israelites for the Messiah and Israelites against the Messiah. And then he says, he'll be a sign that's spoken against. There will be people who are against what the Messiah stands for. And as the Messiah engages in his God-given role, <clears throat> people's hearts are going to be revealed for who they really are, for what they really think and believe, for their true motives. And we saw that happening, didn't we, in the Gospels? So this Messiah, as prophesied by Simeon here, you know, because of the Holy Spirit, he will not have every person lining up behind him or before him completely ready to follow his lead. 
He, not, he will not have everybody just strapping on their swords ready to follow him into battle. Some will actually oppose him. And then when they do, they show their true colors. When they oppose this baby that Simeon is holding, <clears throat> they show that they actually oppose God himself. Because it says he will be a sign. How people react to him will reveal how they think about God himself. And that will reveal their true hearts. And then Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce her own soul also. So that Mary will have some very tough times according you know, to this prophecy. Very tough times because of her son. So Simeon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is revealing things about the Messiah that most people would never ever have thought of, would never have thought about him. He's going to be some, for some degree, he's, to some degree, he's going to be like a lightning rod. And he will be the line of demarcation. You know, you stand on this side or you stand on this side. You're either for him or against him. And you see that... <clears throat> That prophecy from Simeon is what I see as an example of information that if not known, if not paid attention to, people could be thrown for a loop. You know, Simeon is saying that this Messiah, this hero, this Jewish hero sent from God is going to have fierce opposition within his own people. And those who line up against him will do it to their own destruction, their own demise. Now that's important information, isn't it? And God is letting it out at the Messiah's baby dedication. And all who heed information like this will be so much better off. And that is why I say that today, when people turn their backs on God or Christianity... It could be they're just not reading enough of the Bible. And it may be they've tried to put God into a box that was too small of a box. Or they're just kind of cutting out verses they don't, don't agree with or like. And their picture of God may be sorely lacking. You know, we, when we read through the Gospels, we see these prophecies of Simeon all coming true in Jesus' ministry. Yet those waiting for the Messiah probably never dreamed that the religious leaders of Israel would be the ones plotting to kill him. I mean, who would have even dreamed that that would happen? That the hero of Israel, the one who would take care of it, would deliver the nation, would be killed by the religious leaders. So if anyone becomes distraught in their Christian faith or walk or experience, maybe we can encourage them to gain a fuller understanding of the Christian faith. It was never meant to be a soft and easy life, was it? The Christian life wasn't, wasn't ever meant to remove all suffering and disappointments. It was meant to show us the true pathway to God and to show us the true meaning of life. 
and to show us the way to life eternal, where we will enjoy God and life for all eternity. And all this time, there will be things that we cannot fully explain. And we see by looking in the past how those things that came to be were not fully explained. And that's where we have to trust God. Now, let me read these last verses, which will show us the end of the most important baby dedication ever to take place. Now, all of our baby dedications are important. But this one kind of outshines them. (laughs) There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Anna is another devout follower of God, and her devotion to God is clearly seen in that she would worship daily, fasting and praying, never getting remarried after only seven years of marriage, which looks like she was young when her husband died. So God used Anna to prophesy about the baby and saw him as one who was going to redeem Israel. And so we have two prophets of God here, both very devout followers of God, worshipers of God, whom God used to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And then we have Joseph and Mary returning to Galilee where Jesus grew up, becomes wise and strong, and it says that the grace of God was upon him. and that is the last thing we know about Jesus until he is accidentally left at the temple but it seems that God's attention was on him in a very special way and that he provided earthly parents for his son whom he could trust since they were faithful followers of him now I would just like to reiterate here at the end that all through this birth narrative of Jesus, God chose to do things in ways that no one could have predicted. No one did predict, no one could have predicted. So what that tells us, I believe, is that to follow God is to live by faith. And even when we see things in the Bible that are hard to understand, we need to live by faith. It isn't a faith with no guidance because we have lots and lots of guidance in the scriptures. It isn't a faith with no evidence. We have lots and lots of evidence. People complain that the Christian faith has no, no evidence and they think, they think evolution does. But it's a faith that requires trust in a good God who loves us. And we know that he loves us no matter what happens in our lives, no, no matter how much we feel like we've been mistreated or cheated, we know he loves us because he allowed his son to be brutally murdered 
so that we could be forgiven. And so like Simeon, we can choose to have peace rule our hearts. We will face rough times in this life. But we know he came once and made the payment for our sins and brought us saving grace, a way to God. And we can trust and know that he will return and he will set up his kingdom and the faithful will enter. So now we can not only die in peace, but we can live in peace, trusting in God's promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how much joy and proof and peace it can give us because it has so many, so many things about you and how you've dealt with people and how you've brought your promises to fruition and how you're going to do the same in the future. And so we thank you for it. Everything that you have given us in the scriptures and through people down through the ages and ask that you'd help us to remain strong in our faith and to continue to turn to you and any doubt we can just trust that you know what is best and you will do what is best. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.